Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. If you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. As I mentioned, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and normally we go right into reading our passage and then take a minute to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. But I do want to take just a moment to give some explanation to verse 1 of 1 Samuel 13 before we read, because in the ESV that I'm reading from, it's a little muddy and hard to understand. And if you have a different translation, you may see something that seems completely different. And so I don't want you guys distracted while we're reading the rest of 13 and you're still stuck in verse 1 trying to figure out what in the world is going on in verse 1. So I just wanted to take a moment to explain kind of what's happening here. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, the the Hebrew manuscript that, that lies behind this, we translate it into various, in our context, English translations. The Hebrew that lies behind it seems like it's maybe missing some numbers. And so in the original language, it says something like Saul, year, king, reigned two years over Israel. And so the translators had to figure out, well, what does that mean? Does it mean Saul lived for one year, reigned for one year, reigned for two more years after the first year? And so various translations deal with it in different ways. So we see here in the ESV, it's on the screen, that first line, the ESV, the King James, the New King James, essentially translated something like Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, so Clearly, Saul was older than one year old when he became king. And so the sense is, perhaps that means he it was one year of transition from the time he met Samuel until the time he began to reign. And then summary statement, he reigned for two years over Israel before his ultimate debacle happens at the end of chapter 15, when the kingdom is finally taken from him, though he continues to rule for many years after that. So that's maybe one way of viewing the ESV. The RSV, the Revised Standard Version, just says... We're not even going to try to fill in the blanks. So they leave it blank. And you can see that there on the screen. Saul was blank years old when he began to reign. And he reigned blank in two years over Israel. And then you have the Christian Standard Bible, the New International Version, the New American Standard. And they fill in the blanks. And they put Saul was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned 42 years over Israel. And you may wonder, well, what gives them the authority to fill in the blanks and put these numbers in there. Well, we know from Acts chapter 13, verse 21, where it's summarizing the reign of Saul. It says that Saul reigned for 40 years. So that's what it says in the New Testament. It gives us a number. So they're saying probably the number 40 just dropped somewhere along the process of when the scribes were copying the Hebrew manuscripts. And so we can put 40 back in there in our English translations. In fact, I think the New American Standard has the numbers 30 and 40 in italics to let you know it's not there in the original. So the 30 years old comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is really old. And some of those Greek manuscripts have the number 30. So that's where those translations get it from. So normally, I don't want to bog us down in this kind of stuff because 
as you can see, ultimately, it has no bearing on the meaning of the text. It's not going to change anybody's theological position. We don't have to worry or be concerned about, well, this just destroys our confidence in God's word. That's not what's happening here. It's just one place where it's just the, the original, main, well, we don't have the original manuscripts, where the copies of the manuscripts are just a little muddy, hard to figure out. We don't need to be bashful about that or hide from that. We can be honest about that. And that just shows us how much more confidence we can have that the rest of the Bible is not like that for the most part. And, and even the spots that are hard like this are minor issues that don't really impact our theology or our understanding of God's word. So in the end, verse one is helpful, but it's not of ultimate importance. But I knew it could be distracting if you were reading something entirely different. So I just wanted to take a few minutes to mention that. Ultimately, regardless of where you come down, verse 1 is a summary statement of Saul's reign in one way or the other. It's saying, hey, look, Saul reigned for two years before he sinned and the kingdom was taken from him. But we do know his total reign was around 40 years. And so it's giving the summary statement, as it does for so many other kings, that they were X number of years old when they became king and reigned for another Y number of years. So just with that in place, now that Lord willing, you're not quite as distracted trying to figure out what's going on in verse one. Let's read chapter 13, the entire chapter. We want to put God's word before us, and then we will ask for the Lord's help and dive in together. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering over here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that your people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in, in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, the land of Shaul. Another company turned toward Beth Horan, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for all of your word. What a privilege it is by your grace, through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that we are able to gather together this morning under the truth and authority of your word. We are so thankful for 1 Samuel chapter 13. And so, Father, we pray that you would do what you have promised, that you would use the truth of your, of your word, that you would use 1 Samuel chapter 13 to change us and conform us to the likeness of Jesus. Even as we look here at the beginnings of Saul's failures, I pray that we would be warned. Father, I pray that this passage would remind us of our need to fear you, to not fear man, to not justify our sin, but to fear you and seek obedience to you and to you alone. And so, Father, we pray for your help this morning. I ask for your help. I pray that you would guard my words this morning. Allow me to say only what is true. Help me to not lead anyone astray, including my own heart, my own mind. And uh, I pray that by the power of your spirit that you have graciously sent to dwell in us, that by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, you would be at work in us, shaping us and molding us to the likeness of Jesus this morning for our good and the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when our kids were younger and we, we lived in Wilson, North Carolina, and all of our kids played rec league soccer, at least the ones that were old enough at the time. They had uh, teams from three years old all the way up to 12 and older. By the way, quick parenting tip if you have a large family, be sure and coach your children's teams so that you can control your practice schedule, Okay. Just a quick tip so that you can put all the practices on one night and they're not spread out throughout the week. Also, bonus tip, it means you get to see all their games because they don't schedule games on top of each other if you're the coach because you have to be at all of them. All right, so just, just I won't charge you for that one, okay? Just a, a parenting tip for you that works out well. But nevertheless, I'll never forget, especially those young teams coaching those four-year-olds and the five and six-year-olds, and we're at practice with them, and you know, I think I'm coach of the year because we're going over, we're going to get it right just over and over and over. We're, we're even just drilling how you start the game, right? The ball is going to be set in the middle, and if it's our ball, the person with the ball needs to, you have to kick it backward. You're not allowed to kick it forward. You have to kick it backward to your teammate, and what we're going to do is you're going to kick it backward to your teammate, and then I want you to start running toward the goal and they're going to try and pass the ball to you. All right? And they all shake their heads yes. Okay, we ex understand exactly what we're supposed to do. We do it in practice over and over and over and over and over again. 
We get to the game. We're getting ready to start the game. I gather them up, right? Okay, listen. Remember what we practiced. You're going to be on the ball. You kick it backward to this guy or, or this young girl sitting, uh, standing there. They're going to take the ball, and you're going to start running down. They're going to pass it to you, and then both of you go and try to score, right? Simple enough. All right, everybody understand? Yeah, we, okay, let's go. We understand. Shaking their heads, yes. And then they go out on the field, and the referee sits the ball down, and there's parents watching. That wasn't at practice. <laughs> and there's a referee with a whistle, and there's this other team on the other side. Well, that, that wasn't written. We have official jerseys on, right? There's all this pressure in the moment, and the referee blows the whistle, and what do you think happens? They start dribbling the ball, right, and just going as fast as they can. And the referee has to stop the game, said, no, you got you to pass it backward. And they try, and then they pass it forward. And then finally, after like three or four attempts, they eventually, that first game of the season, they finally get it right. Was well, I think about taking all that time to tell them exactly what they're supposed to do. And we drill it over and over and over again. And we talk about it before the game. And then they do the exact opposite. I just have to imagine that this is exactly how Samuel felt when he sees what goes on in chapter 13. I mean, do you remember how chapter 12 ended? Samuel has given this powerful, eloquent speech to God's people and to Saul about how to move forward from their sin. This is what you need to do moving forward. And as he comes to a conclusion here in chapter 12, he says in verses 24 and 25, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. I mean, these are relatively simple instructions that he gives. So the summary would be simply, look, Samuel says to God's people, he says to Saul, if you want to do well, then you need to fear the Lord, serve him faithfully, and always remember what great things he has done. And you can almost see the people shaking their heads, saying yes, and Saul saying, okay, here we go, we've got it. And then the moment the threat comes, as soon as the pressure is on Saul, it's as if everything Samuel says just fades into the background and all that Saul can think about or care about is himself and what he thinks is right. It is a stunning disappointment to read chapter 13 after Samuel's speech in chapter 12. Saul just completely forgets everything that Samuel says. And it becomes clear that even though Samuel said, Saul, you must fear the Lord, it is clear that Saul has no fear of the Lord. It's not even on his radar. And so as we read chapter 13, we too must be warned this morning about the dangers of failing to fear the Lord our God. That when we fail to fear the Lord, as Samuel told the people to fear the Lord, it will inevitably lead to sin and disobedience and rebellion. That's why the Bible tells us in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we fail to fear the Lord, we're not going to be wise. We're not going to walk in obedience. Or as John Bunyan put it, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And they that lack the beginning have neither middle nor end. Or Charles Bridges puts it this way. But what is the fear of the Lord? And I love this next line. It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. It is an affectionate reverence 
Saul lacked that affectionate reverence. Saul lacked a healthy fear of the Lord. And therefore, you will see that he has, he has no wisdom. And so what we're going to see is the dangers of not fearing the Lord. And we're going to see that danger play out in three distinct ways in this passage. When we fail to fear the Lord, it will inevitably result in, number one, robbing God of his glory. Robbing God of his glory, number two, It results in an unhealthy fear of man. And number three, it will inevitably result in pragmatic disobedience. Robbing God of his glory, an unhealthy fear of man, and pragmatic disobedience. So let's look there at the start, verses one through four, how we will rob God of his glory if we fail to fear the Lord. Robbing God of his glory. Now, we've already mentioned that verse 1 is kind of this summary statement of some kind about the reign of Saul. But when we get into the details, we're told that Saul is gathering a standing army. He chooses 3,000 men. Now, this is distinct from the army that he had back in chapter 11 because that was like calling up the reserves. He, he calls up everybody to come to battle. They gather a total of 330,000 men to go to battle And they do it, and they have the victory. And at that moment, Saul gives God all the praise and all the glory. But here now, Saul's not just calling people up for a particular battle. He's establishing a standing army. So that's an army of 3,000 men. You see that there in verse 2. 2,000 of those were with Saul in Michmash and the whole country of Bethel. And 1,000 of them were with his son, Jonathan, in Gibeah, of Benjamin. So they're divided up. And then it says at the end of verse two, he sends everybody else home. So they have an army of 3,000, 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. Everybody else goes home. Now, remember when Samuel anointed Saul to be king, he made clear that God was anointing him to be king to free his people from the oppression of the Philistines. And he told Saul, when all the signs come to you, Do what your hand finds to do. He's saying to him, take care of the Philistines. Take care of business. And yet we've seen time and time again, Saul is still yet to do anything about the Philistine threat. He's done nothing. And in fact, it's his son, Jonathan, who's the one who finally takes action. And we're going to see this throughout Samuel. It's the faithlessness of Saul, but the faithfulness of his son, Jonathan. It's his son who's actually doing the things Saul ought to have done. And you see that there in verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. So Jonathan takes, he has half the men that Saul had. Remember, he only has a thousand. And he goes to battle, and he defeats the garrison of the Philistines. Now, I want to pause here for a moment to be sure we appreciate just how big of a deal this would have been. And the details at the end of chapter 13 are really important for us to read them back into what just happened with Jonathan defeating the garrison of the Philistines. Because what did we learn at the end of chapter 13 that we just read? Beginning in verse 19. There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. In other words, the Philistines were such a powerful, oppressive, even somewhat occupying force that they even controlled the economy and the markets of Israel, and they had removed any blacksmith from the land of Israel. There was literally nowhere 
for God's people to go to have weapons made for war. The Philistines saw to it, and they were so strict about it that to even have their farm instrument sharpened, they had to go to somebody in who was part of the Philistines to get their farm instruments sharpened. So that's what it's talking about. They didn't have swords or spears. They had to go to the Philistines to get their plow shares sharpened, their mattocks sharpened, their axes, their sickles, all of these farm instruments the Philistines had to take care of because they wanted to control the military of Israel to be sure they had they had no weapons that they could possibly use to rise up against them. Now, knowing that, we need to read that back into what we just read in verse 3. Jonathan takes... A thousand men armed with farm tools, right? Axes and mattocks, sickles, probably not plowshares. I don't know how you would use a plowshare in, in, in battle. So probably just the axes, the mattocks, the sickles, right? They're like a peasant mob, right? With pitchforks going after the what we know to be the heavily armed Philistines, right? They had all the weapons. A little bit later, remember, we read they they gather 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Like this was a well-armed nation with plenty of people, troops like the sand on the seashore. And Jonathan leads a thousand men who are like farm peasants with farm weapons. And they go and they, they wipe out the garrison of the Philistines, right? It is a act of God, that they won that victory. Now, why is that important for us to see? Because how does Saul respond to this victory? Look at the second half of verse three. Saul wants everybody to know about it, as he should, right? So what opportunity to rejoice in what God has done. And so he blows the trumpet throughout the land and he says, let the Hebrews hear. He's going to announce this grand victory. And what did Israel hear? Verse four. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. What? Right? What in the world are you talking about, Saul? You had nothing to do with it. Not only was it not your army, it was Jonathan who did it and not you. So you're not only taking glory from your son, but more importantly, you are robbing God of the glory he deserves. Because only God brings the victory when it's men armed with farm instruments who wipe out a well-armed Philistine garrison. This should have been Saul shouting from the rooftops, look what God has done, right? It's what he did in chapter 11 when they defeated the Ammonites, right? What did Saul say in chapter 11, 13 when when he took the 330,000 men and wiped out the Ammonites? He said, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel, But what happens here in chapter 13? A thousand men with axes and mattocks defeat a well-armed garrison of the Philistines. And instead of giving God the glory, Saul wants all the glory for himself. This is the first clear piece of evidence of what will be an ongoing problem in Saul's life. He doesn't like other people getting credit for things, even if they deserve it. We're going to see it as David rises up inside the kingdom. David is fighting in Saul's army and David wins all of these victories. And it infuriates Saul when people are giving praise to David for what's happened instead of giving Saul the credit. Saul is all about Saul. He wants glory for himself. And when a king of Israel refuses to acknowledge and give glory to the God who rescues, it is inevitable that dark days are ahead. 
There is no fear of the Lord before Saul's eyes. Even though Samuel told him that is the path forward, fear only, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. And here when the pressure's on, Saul forgets everything that Samuel has said. He has no fear of the Lord and he just does what he wants to do. And I want you to see that even here, however, even here, the fact that Saul draws another breath after taking God's glory from him is a demonstration of God's grace toward him. You know, it's easy to read this and and see how later in the chapter, we're going to see that Saul doesn't wait on Samuel long enough and he messes up and sins and rebels and offers the sacrifice and God immediately removes the kingdom from him and is tempted to say, wow, God, you didn't, that seems a little harsh. You didn't show a lot of patience with Saul, but I want you to see even here, God is already showing patience with Saul. How do I know that? Well, there's an event in Acts chapter 12, verses 21 to 23, that shows us what every man deserves who refuses to give God its rightful glory. Acts chapter 12, verses 21 to 23. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, meaning Herod, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So anytime a king, a man, takes God's glory for themselves, and God doesn't strike them down immediately, it is an act of God's grace which means God's grace is all over the place, brothers and sisters. And God is showing grace to Saul that he doesn't take him out the moment he takes the glory that God alone deserved. You see, if we would just heed what Samuel said to Saul at the end of chapter 12, fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart, consider what great things he has done for you. You see, when we fear the Lord, we naturally remember the great things that he has done. And when we remember those things, it allows us to see the world through through God's eyes, to see that he deserves all the glory, that any temptation to take credit ourselves is removed from us because we want God to get all of the glory. But it starts with a healthy fear of the Lord, a reverent affection for him that will drive us to get God, God all of the glory due his name. Listen, church, let's make it a priority in our lives individually and in our church corporately that God is the one who always gets all the glory. It doesn't mean we, the Bible tells us to honor those to whom honor is due. We celebrate about God working through individuals. We, we want to honor people, but we don't stop there. We take it all the way up. We honor people because of how God has used them, because of what God is doing through them. So let's not be a church that ever robs God of his glory. Let us settle in on a healthy, affectionate reverence of fear of the Lord and therefore give him all the glory that he deserves. So that's result number one of failing to fear the Lord. It's that we will rob God of his glory. But the second danger of not fearing the Lord is that we will develop an unhealthy fear of man. Look at verses five through seven. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. 
Listen, verse four has already told us that because of what Jonathan has done, the Philistines are angry. They're embarrassed. It says that Israel had become a stench to them, right? They are out for vengeance. Remember, a thousand peasant farmers took out their garrison and they're saying, that's not going to happen again. And so they gather up this troops like this army, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore. So just try to put this in perspective for a moment. At most, Israel had a standing army of 3,000 at this point in time. Now, Saul did call up a few others, but remember, by the time all is said and done, Saul's only going to be left with 600 guys. So going with that 3,000 number, at most, Saul has these 3,000 men ready for war, but they have no swords, they have no shields, they have farm tools, axes, mattocks, and, and so on, sickles. And if you do the proportions, right, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 soldiers on horseback, and then you have troops that are essentially innumerable, that means for every one Israeli soldier, there were 10 chariots, two armed horsemen, and at least, if not more, 30 armed Philistine soldiers. So imagine you individually with your backhoe, right, <laughs> surrounded by... 10 chariots, two armed horse, soldiers on horseback, and 30 soldiers. Those are not great odds, humanly speaking. So verse 6 states the obvious, right? The men of Israel saw they were in trouble, <laughs> right? That's an overwhelming show of force. And so how do they respond? Well, it says they ran away. They just run away and hide. They go run and they hide in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Everywhere they can find a hole, anywhere they can hide, they go and they get away. And, and not only that, many of them hide, but then verse 7 says a lot of the others just run away. They, they cross the Jordan. They find places where they can get across the water. They take boats across the water. They're getting as far away as dangerous as they can. So here's Saul and the Philistines have gathered 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops as, num as numerous as the sands on the seashore and his army runs away. They're hiding in caves and holes and crossing the river to get as far away as they can. And by the time it all settles out, verse 15 tells us that he's left with 600 men. 600 men is all that he has when it all settles. Now, from a human perspective, running away and hiding makes a lot of sense. Right? It's probably, let's be honest, it's what we would do, right? But the people were not called to have a worldly human perspective on the gathering threat. What had Samuel told them? Fear the Lord, serve him faithfully, and consider what great things he has done. In fact, earlier in Samuel's speech, he specifically told them in verse 11 to remember the times of the judges when the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah. And the name Jerubbabel is just another name for Gideon. Samuel said specifically, remember Gideon. Remember what God did through Gideon. And in fact, I think the author of 1 Samuel is wanting us to make that explicit connection because here he describes the Philistine army as being as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And in Judges, when we're reading about Gideon, if you don't recall, Gideon has an army of 32,000 men. And God says, nope, 32,000 is too many. Because if you go to battle with 32,000, you're going to take all the credit instead of giving me the glory. So I'm going to protect you from that, Gideon. 
And so Gideon says, look, if you're afraid to go to battle, go home. And so 22,000 men run away and they go home. And 10,000 men are left. And God says to Gideon, nope, 2,000 is still too many. If you go to battle with 10,000, they're going to be filled with pride if they win. We've got to get it smaller. And so God sets up this method for Gideon in the way that the men are going to drink water out of the river or the, the lake and and they go down and they drink, and, and the way they drink determines what happens. And only 300 of them drink in the way that sets them apart. And so now the army of 32,000 is down to 300, and God says, that's the number I want. That's what I want. And then Judges chapter 7, verse 12, describes the army of the Midianites. And it says in Judges seven twelve, they are as many as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. In other words, Gideon was outnumbered in greater ways than Saul was, but Gideon went to battle. And what did God do that day? He wiped out the Midianites. He took them out by his sovereign hand at the hands of the 300 men of Gideon. You see, this is what Samuel is talking about when he says, look, Fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. You need, you need to remember, Saul, what great things God has done. You need to remember what he is capable of so that you don't fold under pressure. Remember who he is and what he has done so that you don't fear the Philistines. You don't have to fear the 30,000 chariots. You don't have to fear the 6,000 horsemen. You don't have to fear the troops that are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I've been there. I've done that. It's not a problem, Saul. I'll do it again. God loves to win with odds like that. He designed it to win with odds like that so that he gets the glory that he deserves. In other words, God has Saul and his army exactly where he wants them to lead them to a glorious victory. But instead of rallying the troops, instead of reminding them of God's faithfulness, instead of Saul saying, you don't need to fear the God, the sovereign king of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who holds the Philistine army together by the word of his power is on our side. There is no need to fear. Instead of that, Saul's too busy trying to take the glory for himself. And he's trembling just like everybody else is. And there is no fear of God before his eyes. So instead of fearing God and crying out to him, they are more afraid of the army on the other side. You see, it's even more condemning because the reason that people ask for a king is so that he would go out and fight the battles and win. And now they have exactly what they've asked for, but it still didn't solve their problem because you see the people of Israel didn't have a lack of king problem. They had a heart problem. They didn't fear the Lord. You see, Psalm 118.6 says to us, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If the Lord's on my side, what have I to fear? What can man do to me? Well, man can kill you. But Jesus says to us in Matthew 10.28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, when we fail to fear God, we will inevitably have an unhealthy fear of man. And an unhealthy fear of man always leads to sin. It always leads to rebellion. It always leads to disobedience. And therefore, Saul is a man of disobedience. The people are disobedient when they flee and when they don't stand up to those who would dare taunt the armies of the living God. 
Listen, how often is it true in our lives that we fail to obey God because we let a fear of man overwhelm us daily? Or we fail to walk in obedience because we're more concerned about what a person thinks or what a person might do. We're more concerned about that than we are about what God thinks and what God desires for us. You see, this is an imminent danger of failing to fear the Lord. We are constantly in danger of making sinful decisions because we care more about what people think than what God thinks, which ultimately leads to the final issue with Saul, the final result of failing to fear God, and that is pragmatic disobedience. Pragmatic disobedience. Look with me, beginning in verse 8. It says, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. In other words, Saul's getting desperate. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. There he was. Saul had no business making the sacrificial offering. It wasn't his role. It wasn't his job. And Samuel specifically told him not to. Samuel said, look, when you go to battle, when you arrive in Gilgal, when that happens, wait for me for seven days. I'll be there and then wait for me to get there to tell you what to do. Saul completely disregards it. The pressure's on. And in the moment the pressure's on, he has forgotten to fear the Lord. And he does what Saul wants to do. And in no way does he think he is wrong. In fact, when Samuel shows up, the, the, the end of verse 10 is written like, like he's happily there. He's like Saul went out. Saul went to him to meet him and greet him. And like, hey, Samuel, glad you're finally here. He has no clue that he has done something so evil. I mean, it re reminds me of a time when my, my brother and I, so our family collected baseball cards, which are now worthless. That's a story for another time. But at the time, we were collecting all these baseball cards. Like we were serious about it. And our dad helped us with it. And so what you would do is you would buy packs of baseball cards or boxes of packs of baseball cards. And it's just a random assortment of cards inside those. And so you buy a bunch of them and you sort them and you try to create complete sets of cards. You want to have every card in that brand for that year. And then that complete set is in theory worth a lot of money at some point in the future. But now I basically just need to use it for a bonfire. But okay, but that's the theory. It's worth a lot of money. If you have that complete set, well, there was one particular brand of cards, Donruss cards, and they came with puzzles inside them, okay? So there would be a thicker card that would have three puzzle pieces on the card, and that was part of your complete set. So to have a complete set that's worth money, you needed to have all those puzzle cards as well. Well, my brother and I got up one morning, and we wanted to put a puzzle together. So we started popping out the puzzle pieces, popping out the puzzle pieces, and we started putting the puzzle together because that's what you do with puzzles, right? And so we were probably, I don't know, 75% finished and dad comes in the room and we, we run to meet him and greet him. Say, look at, the, look at this. Our, this is pretty cool. Look at this puzzle we made. And I think he probably literally said, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done, right? These complete sets that are going to be worth all this money are now worthless because we don't have those complete puzzle cards in there anymore because you have torn them apart and tried to make a puzzle. That's not what it's for. This is a collector's item. What have you done? That's really the picture that's being painted here. Saul runs to him. It's like, hey, Samuel. And Samuel's immediate response is, what have you done? And it's the exact same phrase in the original language that God says to Adam in the garden when he's hiding. What have you done? 
It's the same exact question that God asked Cain when he kills his brother Abel. What have you done? And here Samuel says to Saul, what have you done? And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Saul starts to make excuses, right? He gives pragmatic reasoning, right? Here's all the reasons why I disobeyed God. Look, look, Samuel, you have to understand, verse 11, the people were running away from me. You didn't come when you said you were going to come. The Philistines have 30,000 chariots ready to bear down on us, 6,000 horsemen. I mean, things are not going well, Samuel. I didn't know what else to do. And so he says, because of all these reasons, I have all these reasons I'm giving, this, these pragmatic realities, I forced myself, verse 12, I made myself offer the burnt offering. So here's Saul thinking his justification makes it okay. And Samuel simply says to him in verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Therefore, the kingdom is being taken away from you. He says, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Your throne, your descendants, your offspring would have reigned forever, but not now. Not now because you are a pragmatist. Instead of fearing the Lord, you let justification and reasons and your own wisdom rule the day. Instead of fearing the Lord and obeying him and knowing what great things he could do, you took matters into your own hands and rebelled against him. Therefore, verse 14 says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. By the way there, that's referring to God's heart here in this verse. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, a man who is in God's heart, and he's going to pursue him and make him prince over his people because, Saul, you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Listen, let's be, let's be really, really honest this morning. This is a, a trap. It's so easy for us to fall into. We know what God has commanded, but we observe the landscape, and we come up with all kinds of reasons why we ought not do what God has commanded us to do. It's utilitarianism, it's pragmatism, and it's ugly, and it's destructive. And it is the way of the world to think that our wisdom can rule over God's commands, to think, well, God just doesn't understand my situation. God doesn't know what I'm going through. God doesn't know the adversity I'm facing. If he knew it, then he would be okay with me disobeying. No. The excuses, the pragmatism, the reasoning, none of it matters. Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly. Therefore, God is removing the kingdom from you. God would rather us lay down our lives if that's what it costs, disobey him. That's the story of the martyrs throughout history, of course. Instead of denying him, they were willing to be killed for him. And it even reminds me, of course, of our eternal King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who prayed in the garden in Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is Jesus saying, of course, I would rather die than disobey you, Father. I will do what it takes. And it's not about my will. It's about your will. In the end, all that matters is what 
the Father wants. There's not some pragmatic solution that Jesus comes up with in that moment. You don't know how painful it's going to be. You don't know how terrible it's going to be. You don't know what it's going to be like when, when I'm bearing the wrath of all who are going to trust in me and in my completed work. I'm bearing it on myself. I'm going to be under the very wrath that they deserve. I'm going to be suffering on the cross with nails through my hands and feet and a crown of thorns on my head, barely being able to gasp and draw my last breath. You don't understand. It certainly can't be that you would want me to endure that, Father. No, there are no excuses. There, aren't, there is no pragmatic reasoning. It's simply, not as I will, but as you will. And praise God, even though every human king will fail us and has failed us, our King Jesus is not. And he's willing to take obedience to the very end. He learned obedience through what he suffered, meaning he experienced obedience in his suffering because he lays down his life if that's what it takes to obey the Father. And here's the really good news for us this morning. The righteous life of Jesus Christ is given to all who trust in him, including his righteous acts on the cross. So even though there are going to be times in our lives when we fail our Father, and we're going to take the easy way out, and we're going to show a fear of man, and we're going to let pragmatic reasoning rule the day, and we're not going to fear God as we ought to, that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... You will not be judged by your failure to fear, but by Jesus's fear to the end. And you will stand righteous before the throne because 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Now, that doesn't mean we throw caution to the wind and we live however we want to live. No, we live as new creations in Christ. We live as changed people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, that we live in this affectionate, reverent fear of the Lord. And we want to give all the glory to Jesus. We want him to receive it all. We want to live in fear of him and not, not determine our actions by any kind of fear of man. So let us refuse to fear man as the redeemed people of God. And let us only have one consideration when we're faced with decisions in our life. Is this obedient to the Lord and trust him to take care of the rest? That's what he has called us to. This is what a life shaped by the fear of God looks like. It's what the fruit of the spirit looks like in the children of God. So let it be true of us by the grace of God and the power of the spirit in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the good news of the gospel, that even though we will often fail to live up to the standard you have given us, Father, so often we struggle to, to fear you instead of fearing man, and we put our priorities all in the wrong places, and we justify our actions, and we make excuses. And Father, our sinfulness is so deep and so pervasive, but we are thankful that even so you loved us and you sent your son to live in our place and to die in our place. And so, Father, I pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, help us to put those sins to death in our life. Help us to pursue holiness and righteousness and remove from us any fear of man that outweighs the fear we ought to have of you and help us to walk in courageous obedience to who you are and the truth of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.